0: I say, everything's going to be alright. I say, everything's going to be alright. Good day wherever you're listening from and welcome to Indoor Air Quality Radio. It's Friday, August 7th, 2015 we are up to episode 379 my name is radio joe hughes here with me in studio d at the controls is our engineer john you gotta have faith and joining us on the phone is going to be the z-man cliff Zlotnik, and of course the restoration industries global watchdog pete consigli hello cliff hello everybody thanks for listening it's gonna be a fun show today good day yeah we're gonna have a lot of fun before we get started Um, Let's also touch base and and quickly mention the IAQ Training, IAQ Radio, Healthy Buildings Summit at Seven Springs, Pennsylvania. And uh, you can go to the iaqtraining.com website for more information on that. And, of course, let's stop for one minute and thank our marquee sponsors.
1: John Don Products, where restoration and abatement contractors shop, visit them at JohnDon.com.
0: CleanFacts, the number one information source for cleaning and restoration professionals. Check them out at cleanfactswithanx.com.
1: IAQ.net and Healthy Indoors Magazine, a free online digital magazine for industry professionals and consumers. Subscriptions available at IAQ.net. Please be sure to thank our sponsors for their support of IAQ Radio when you acquire about their products. For services.
0: Okay, you can stream any of our past shows from the website, iaqradio.com. We've got that new search box that you can plug in a name, so put in Consigli, C-O-N-S-I-G-L-I. Check out the last show we did with Pete. It was a nice two-parter, and uh, you can always download shows from there as well. All right, let's turn it over to the Z-Man for today's IAQ Radio trivia question. Thanks, Joe.
1: Win a cool prize by out-competing fellow IAQ radio listeners and being the first person to correctly answer the IAQ radio trivia question each week. Submitting your answer is easy. Either email it to cswatnick at cs.com, or if you're listening to the show live, you can text them the answer via your computer. Congratulations. To John Turnage, Umpire Technologies, Raleigh Durham, North Carolina, for first correct answer to last week's trivia question. That's two in a row for for John. The IQ Radio trivia question for Friday, August seventh, twenty fifteen, has been sponsored by Triska, the Tri-State Restorers and Specialty Cleaners Association, who have been serving the needs of and advocating for. They're members for well over 30 years. Remember, Triska is your link to industry training, certification standards, and events. Check out their website. It's trsca.org. And Triska was really proud to partner with Joe and I for this upcoming Healthy Building Summit coming up uh, in the fall. Now for today's Trivia IQ Radio question named the South Philly mobster who said when he took the witness stand in his own defense during a racketeering trial back in summer of 2001, I'm a cook, not a crook, and was sentenced and served seven years in prison and now owns a restaurant called the Kitchen Conciliary Cafe in New Jersey.
2: Back to you, Joe. Hmm,
0: that's a good one, Cliff. All right. This week, we've got back the Restoration Industries Global Watchdog, Pete Consigli. I know IAQ radio, radio listeners know Pete. and He's a friend of the show, helps us recruit guests and Help with interviews that address issues facing the restoration industry. What some may not know is that he is also a certified restorer and a water loss specialist. He's been a member of the Restoration Industry Association, which was formerly ASCR, since 1977. He's been a very active volunteer. He was a trainer, an educator. He currently is in a dual role of RIA Education Director and Industry Advisor. He reports to the RIA's Executive Committee of the Association's Board of Directors, and he directs all aspects of RIA's education program, continuing the longstanding tradition of providing those members Industry leading comprehensive technical and managerial training. He also advises the board on matters impacting the restoration industry and their mission to provide industry leadership, support science, and promote best practices in cleaning and restoration. Let's get some music for Pete. done. Last week, Pete, or actually it was two weeks ago, we did our first ever two-hour show with a little break in between, and we we went through the history of the restoration industry, and you and and Cliff took a, a stroll down Restoration Lane. I was wondering after the show, you know, is there? Any, and we're going to finish the the story today. We're going to go from the two thousands and beyond and look into the future. But before we do, can you take a minute and kind of you know fill in those that weren't here last week? And also, if there was anything you missed last week, either you or Cliff, let our listeners know.
2: Yeah. All right. Uh, how's it going, Cliff? Joe and uh, all the IQA Risk listeners. I uh, uh, two comments. Number one, that trivia question was really really good. And it sounded like the, the intro music, it sounded like Jimmy, is that Jimi Hendrix playing the Godfather theme? <laughs> no. <laughs>
1: it's Yeah, uh, That's cool.
2: Well, listen, just to quickly, you know, those of the listeners that weren't on last week, I mean, we pretty much started, you know, where I came from and how Cliff and myself first met, and we really talked about uh, the late 70s, the 80s, the 90s, kind of right up to the turn of the century, if you would, of... Uh, you know our relationship together and uh, you know a lot of uh, you know how the industry grew and evolved and i think where we ended was uh, really uh, kind of the rebranding of ASCR uh to RIA and that was announced in 2007 really on the IAQA radio show and that i think that was the beginning of really a long standing relationship between RIA and myself and the show and um you know it's been a really great relationship and uh and um but anyway, I am uh, i don't really have much more else to say. I
0: don't know if Cliff does. Otherwise, we can kind of pick up where we left off. Cliff, was there I'm anything? Ready to move on. Okay. I'm ready to move on. Let's move on. Now, we're kind of – got to go back just a little bit to fill listeners in because summer camp is, is coming up on 20 years, and we all just came back from summer camp, another great 19th year of the Westford Symposium on Building Sciences. But, um, you know, the first few years weren't, weren't like it is now. And at, at one point, summer camp exploded into basically an iconic and cult-like status. Pete, can you comment on that a little bit, uh, both of you?
2: Yeah. Well, you know, when summer camp was started, with, uh, Cliff and myself first met Joe Stebrook back in the early to mid-'90s, and he met Mac Pierce and a number of other, you know, uh, building science people. Uh, uh, that were uh, that we just kind of ran into. And there became a point that I discussed in the last show where when the old ASCR uh, launched the Water Loss Institute division, part of the marching orders for the institute was to, uh, to have myself and some of the others go out and find people that um, could teach us stuff that we needed to know. In other words, I think we felt we all learned from each other, uh, and it was now time to find other people that we could learn from. And so uh, when, when we had a relationship with the Sue Smith and the Mid-Atlantic Environmental Research Center we talked about that did a lot of the training for uh, EPA Region 40, and, um, and we also worked with Richard Shaughnessy from the University of Tulsa that a lot of your IAQA listeners know. Uh, he had like three or four regions um, that uh, you know, did, um, did training uh, that was supported by the government um, for you know, a wide audience. Of indoor air quality building science uh, type practitioners. And so during those days, um, and, at one point we, we ran into Joe, and Joe had come up with this idea of not wanting to have a uh, summer camp, but really was a uh, symposium at a very high level. And what he did is he invited two or three people from the different disciplines and professions that made up the, the building science community, and Cliff myself with the two from restoration. And um, we came, and then uh, it just kind of evolved to. Uh, you know, when I, uh, they didn't really know I was a cook and then I kind of became the chef and one thing led to another, but somewhere along the line, after about 10 years, that it j- it just started to grow and, uh, the demand for it, the unique nature of it. And, um, you know, they built a kitchen for me and, uh, the, the crew expanded, I had a paid crew, volunteer crew, and, um, uh, people started sending and, uh, you know, bringing unique foods from different parts of the world. It was one year you know, a bunch of us went up to Alaska, we went fishing, and we caught the salmon, we caught a bunch of halibut, <laughs> and was shipped, shipped back, and we served, and it's just, uh, it's just kind of been like that, so it's just gotten to the point, point. and then I was kind of really very shocked when uh, the IQA uh, people inducted me uh, into their Hall of Fame based on, uh, you know, my, my involvement with summer camp, but, um, you know, it was really quite an honor, and uh, so anyway, it's, we're, it's, uh, next year is going to be the 20th, and uh, it's quite an event, it's uh not easy to get in. As a you know, there's always uh, some movement each year, but there's a core group of people who've come in for a long time. And uh, anyway, I don't know. Cliff probably. Cliff came back. with that, been in a few years. He came back this year. thought that was nice. Maybe he may have a few words and we move on. Well, Pete, real quick I,
0: before you do, uh, was just uh, it, go ahead, Cliff.
1: It, it just it just grew dramatically. I mean, in terms of the number of people that were there and. You know, the first time we went, we could probably kind of network with each other because you know there's really a, you know we didn't know the other people. There's a lot of information we didn't know, but you know now pretty much you have you've got everything under roof. You know, I mean from the roofing materials and the structural materials and the contractors and the product manufacturers and it's uh, it, it's an amazing event. It was fun. And there was a good
0: contingent of indoor air quality people and and the restoration people and uh, manufacturers, and now I'm seeing a lot more energy-related people because all of these things tie together. They affect the indoor environment. Pete, just ballpark, how many people now show up for summer camp?
2: Well, between 450 and 500 for Monday and Tuesday, which are the two big days, and, you know, it kind of starts on the weekend and it rolls over to night which was last uh, which was Wednesday and then you know some people stay and they leave on a Thursday but, but Monday Tuesday have the two really big nights
0: all right I, w- I want to go back to the RIA for just a moment the restoration industry Association and I guess there, there's a note here that the founding fathers depart as the cleaners had left long ago can you comment on that
2: yeah so one of the things that happened and I talked in the first part of the show and in, in, in uh, the association is going to be 70 years old next year and we started in the in the nineteen forties and we've had four names we had the original start as the national institute of rug cleaners then they they changed over somewhere in the sixties or early seventies to the association of interior decor specialists and that's spelled A-I-D-S so in the, in the early eighties we changed the name for the obvious reason it became the ASCR, the association of specialists in cleaning and restoration at the time when we did that name change um, was kind of an open process and uh, we came up with it. Well, as the IHCRC grew, as the dynamic of restoration became more of a, you know, a specialized uh, industry itself and it wasn't kind of rolled up with uh, remodelers and, uh, you know, cleaners, if you would, um, I guess the Association for Whatever probably was not serving the needs of the carpet and upholstery cleaning industry. Uh, as they would, and and so when the connections group started, and a lot of the iacrc activities and the shareholder associations, many of them really kind of supported that. And we didn't have that many that were members of REA, unless they were companies with uh, large rug cleaning plants. Some of the founding ten members, and uh, they had a big carpet cleaning and a big restoration business. Companies uh, like Wooded, for example, St. Louis. There's a handful of them around the country who have been members for a long time because they had restoration needs. So. What happened is I guess when when they got when the board got together to uh to do the rebranding to r e a we realized uh there was just uh it was time to make a name change. We had done some um uh, uh, surveying of the members and realized it was a very small percent of members that were still in the cleaning area and mostly the founding fathers were were the rug cleaners and really a lot of past presidents and um you know great supporters of our association. So we made the name change, and it was done at the very high level, quietly. I guess it was one of those things that they were, knew was was going to be flack, and uh, instead of asking for permission, you just uh, either ask for forgiveness or you just explain it. And that's basically what happened. Shortly after that, the founding fathers left, and, um, and then they, uh, the, the last convention they we were at was 2010 in Atlanta. And then they, they started their own association. I think it, it was probably necessary, the Association of Rough Cleaning Specialist parks. And, um, I stopped at one of their shows in New Orleans earlier this year after DKI I was in New Orleans for DKI and they had their show coincidentally in a different part of the town at the end of that week. And you know, a lot of the founding fathers there, a lot of the, you know, the second generation, a lot of the past presidents. And I visited a lot of our members there who do rug cleaning and restoration and, uh, and it was great. And, um, I'm happy that, you know, they, they've done that. I'm hoping maybe next year for our 70th that some of them will come back and, uh, um, you know, and provide some special expertise on, on the rugs and the areas related to restoration, because there is quite a bit of that. So, you know, it is what it is. I mean, that's, things evolve over time, and that's what happened. I mean, Cook may have some comments on that. He served with a lot of them when he was president and knows them very well, and they're really the leading experts in the roads in uh, that area in the world. We have some of the top ones, really. So
1: Thanks, Pete. I, I do have a couple of comments. You know, I was there. You know, I think that there was some tension uh, between the uh, the rug cleaners and between uh, the restores, I think there was a pretty good system that you know, pretty much presidency would kind of shift back and forth. They were alternating with a rug guy, and a restoration guy, a rug guy, a restoration guy. And then it got a little bit more competitive when they, I think, decided to you know, get the best person for the job. I think really the big issue is that uh, oriental rug cleaning uh, or you know, plant cleaning goes back in the 40s. It was a technology that really didn't change the way they made the rugs, the way they dyed the rugs. You know, none of that stuff changed. And that business never really grew. I think when on-location carpet cleaning uh, came out, implant cleaners suffered. You know, Some of them adapted, became on-location rug cleaners, some of them... Uh, did not, so I think that while restoration was a growing industry, I think that plant rug cleaning was a declining industry, and that, um, you know, we were looking at different, you know, we were looking at different balls, you know, and uh, I think that that's what happened, and I think it's good that it happened in that I think both groups are are better served, and, uh, you know, life will move on, and uh yeah, we wish them well and I think they wish us
0: well.
2: Yeah, I agree with that.
0: has the name change helped the association, do you think, Pete? I mean, have you gotten more members? Has it um
2: helped you know, you know Joe? I I don't I think it's almost an issue. I, I don't think that the reasons that people would join and all that has to do with the name change. I think what the name change was about more than anything in the rebranding but it needed to be reflective of who the members were and what we represented. And I think one of the, I think is the, the true effect of the rebranding and, and the turnaround that was done under Don Manger's, uh, you know, um, uh, uh, when he was the executive director for those five years. It's going to be felt in the years to come because right now the association is moving towards the global model with the Canadian Council uh, rolling out a uh, special Australian conference in, uh, in the fall. And, and hopefully they'll evolve, you know, potentially into a council. Um, you know, we've reached out to the Brits. I mean, we have a lot of uh, old school, uh, a lot of leadership at the BDMA, people that were involved in our association for many years, certified, you know, under our programs, a lot of influence there, a lot of crossover stuff. And I, I think it's moving. And the name Restoration industry is a, it's a, it's a, gener- a generic name. And it's kind of like the United Nations. The United Nations is a global organization that's based in New York. Well, why can't REA be a global organization? It just happens to have its headquarters in Washington, D.C. No one ever says that, that the United Nations is an American uh, organization. Well, I'd like to see people not say REA is an American Restoration Association. I'd like to see it be global. So in that, in that regard, I think we're moving in that direction. I think that the people that did the planning and the rebrand back then, the board members and the staff, I think it was brilliant, to be quite honest. They got a lot of plaque over some stuff. But I think time will tell, and let's, and, and let's just
0: see what happens. All right. Let's 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 move on a little bit. I don't want to go too far ahead, but I want to get some idea of who has influenced both of you, either professionally, personally, and historically. And, and I guess more important, why? And what can others learn from what you learned through these influencers? Yes.
2: Yeah. Well, I'll jump into that one really quickly, and, I, and I'll, I'll kind of answer that. You know, basically, big influence in me, I, I, I study the ancient Greeks. I don't know how that ever happened, but, uh, you know, uh, uh, Plato and Socrates and uh, um, and Aristotle, if you just kind of listen to them, and they figured out all kinds of stuff, you know, 2,000 years ago, long before there was uh, Google computers or anything else in Greek and architecture and medicine and, uh, and social dynamics and banking. And, um, you know, it's really the foundation of Western civilization that we know today. Um, But, you know, if I move a little bit closer, only a few hundred years ago, people like Gandhi, you know, who talked about a higher ethical standard and about doing the right thing. Um, You know, listen to people like Martin Luther King. Um, uh, You know, some of the quotes and some of the people that we reference are some of the founding fathers of America or influential people like Teddy Roosevelt and and, um, Abraham Lincoln um, and, and John Adams and and Thomas Jefferson. I mean, you know, it's really the kind of the spirit of democracy and, uh, you know, and how we operate as a civilization and really in, in the in the Western cultures. So it'd be kind of foolish for for anyone to say, it's kind of in their DNA that they don't influence us and that there's, you know, sometimes we don't need to really, you know, make stuff up. It's kind of like there and it just kind of changes, you know, by the century and, and societally as society changes. But professionally, if I look at things that really affect kind of what I am as a marketing guy and, uh, um, and a strategic guy and an advisor, you know, Al Reese and Jack Trout, who are the two guys who, who wrote positioning and wrote tons of books over the years. Uh, Jim Collins and all his goods are great and have built the last up in the Jerry Porras. Um, uh, you know, uh, all of the Stephen Covey stuff, Peter Drucker. I mean, these guys are the guys who have have taken the timeless principles that really transcend. There's all, you know, obviously we're in the social media age and, you know, the times have changed uh, maybe how we deliver, but the thinking processes, the principles, the foundations of good business, of good management, of ethical thinking, of doing the right thing, those things really haven't changed. Um, So, you know, those are are kind of, uh, you know, the big picture stuff. But if we just get right down into the heart of the industry, you know, obviously, Marty King, Major Law, and of course we're going to talk about Major, Major really brought the professionalism at the highest levels to our industry. A lot of the early guys and early presidents and people that uh, are EA members and certainly know people like, like Reed Dow, Rusty Amaranti, who's still around, is, uh, uh, you know, good, very good friends with Cliff and myself. We started about the same time. He's the, the, the vice president, director oversees all the operations uh, for BELPOR. Um, you know, uh, Mac Pierce, Sue Smith, who ran the, the program, Mike McGinnis. You know, the other thing is a lot of these attorneys who dedicated to the industry, people don't recognize the value. You know, I mean, we're, we're founded on the on the rule of law as a country. And uh, there was a, once years ago, uh, there was a quote by uh, somebody that, uh, she was a cha- the, the chair of the, of the Bar Association, and she addressed the graduating class of, the, the, of Harvard. And she, she started off by saying attorneys are the foot soldiers of American democracy. You know, they're not they're not always thought of in high regard, but good attorneys, they're advisors and they're counselors. And mo- a lot of the people listening to this show, and certainly I remember, we contractors. That means to contract, you contract with people by using legal principles on how to do projects, how to reach the meaning of the minds and reach an agreement. People like Eric Cross, David Caberno, Michael Bowden, Harvey Cohen, you know, these are guys who have, are dedicated to the indoor air quality in the restoration industry, working with our members, and not only in the states where they're licensed to practice, but in other advisory roles in other areas. And really, um, uh, I think they're underestimated. You know, all my summer camp guys uh, that have helped out with that, uh, Paul Lagrange, uh, you know, and Lou Herman for all the years that I worked with him, uh um uh, you know, my Aussie buddies, Ashley, used to be, and he uh, and an Aaron, and Big Ed from State Farm, you know, anyone who's come to summer camp has ever been around, know who all those people are. I mean, just the relationship we've created, the help that they've had, uh, it's really been timeless for me. And um, um, anyway, so that was a pretty long list. I'll, I'll, I'll turn it over to Cliff. Cliff? Uh, um,
1: I, I think, you know, maybe author-wise probably, uh, again, recent Trout. Uh, probably Malcolm Gladwell, uh, you know, in terms of, uh, uh, you know, of of authors, in terms of industry people, you know, certainly uh, Lee Pemberton, uh, you know, taught me how to write an estimate, helped me validate my personal and, I think, professional self-worth. You know, I think Major Wong, who was really an innovator and was creative and Taught me the importance of being an early adopter and thinking creatively and thinking outside the box. He, he was definitely the biggest restoration influence. Uh, I, I really looked up to him. A fellow by the name of Murray Kramer. Uh, you know, he's just a great teacher. And you know, I was stuck when I was putting a training manual together. And you know, he just told me start with a table of contents. And you know, but. I had already written most of the manual. I just couldn't put it together. <laughs> and so uh, when he told me to do a, a table of contents. It, it, it tended to you know, fall into place. Uh, I think Marty King, the thing that he taught me was using details to create value. And it didn't take me long to learn that you can charge more to clean a table made in the Chippendale style. And you can, clean, then you can charge to clean one made in the Ikea style. Hmm. And, uh, probably the, you know, the person who also influenced me the most was Lloyd Weaver. I think that, you know, hands down his air mover was and remains the single greatest innovation in restoration history. And I think he taught me to keep my eye on the ball, uh, the importance of loyalty and, uh, you know, using humor as a, uh, teaching tool. So thanks for letting me thank those people.
0: Glad. Hey, Hey, Joe. Yes.
2: So, so let me tell off of that. I, You know, all of those people that, that Cliff said, obviously I, every one of those, you know, and I, maybe it goes without saying, but I, I definitely need to, to mention Joe Steve And Maybe I just made an assumption, that everybody knows it, but, you know, his whole brilliant idea of summer camp, you know, we must stand on the shoulders to see higher and further of those that come before us uh, is really just the core principle. But, you know, Ed York, I mean, Ed York was... You know, it was brilliant, and uh, if we took away all the brands in the industry that Ed York uh, uh, created, it would be hard to recognize the industry, but the IACRC, DKI, guys like uh, Denny Jensen or Frank Heaton, who we were kind of the next generation to bring DKI to where it was, uh, a fellow named Don Larson when I first moved to California, who had a critical component uh, as an ex-state trooper that uh, completed the DKI model when Ed York created it, of how they re- responded. Uh, you know John Downey. I mean, he was just at summer camp. He's uh, he's the publisher and the editor of the ISRC Journal. The founder of Clean Facts. You know Cliff, him and myself. You know I, I think Ed York was the original watchdog, and then maybe John and Cliff and myself. We kind of we're kind of descendants from him. So you know all of those people are really worthy of mentioning and thanking, and uh, and tremendously uh, influential. Um, a two historical figures. One is Ben Franklin. No one's ever really looked at some of the Ben Franklin stuff. It's amazing the imprint that he has. And one of the other professional authors, I can't believe I got in with Tom Peter. You know, Tom Peter back in, wrote The Pursuit of Excellence in the 80s. But then in the 90s, he wrote The Pursuit of Wow. And The Pursuit of Wow, after I read that book, was the whole reason that I took my sabbatical. He talked about the big R, which means that at some point, you people take time off. A minimum of six months or more. They drop out. They recharge their batteries and they come back focused. And I, I you know, you don't wait till the end of your life to do that. You know, you do that at some point, you know, where you just need that to recharge your batteries and, and I would encourage everybody to uh, to think about that and maybe try to find that book even used on Amazon. I think I think it'd be very motivational anyway.
0: Hmm. Interesting. I did that in my twenties, does that count?
2: <laughs> well, the little R. Let's put it that way. That's what I think he called
0: it. The little R. <laughs> the little R. All right. Let's let's move on. Um, the history of the industry attempting to come together for the greater good. This is something that I I've been trying to help you guys with, and um, you know, it, it's really tough. Can can you talk a little bit about that? You know, the early '90s, the original icra deal the summit 2008 etc there's all kinds of interesting things that i don't know that everybody understands what all has gone on in an attempt to bring this industry together
2: yeah so look i mean at the end of the day in the cleaning and restoration industry there's, there's two major iconic groups and that's that's IACRC and RAA. There's a lot of other ones, and there's a lot of regional associations, and there's many other related groups. But the two largest constituents that make up the cleaners and restorers fall somewhere under the, in my mind, the IACRC umbrella or under the ASDR-REA umbrella. And for many years, the two organizations have been trying to find a common ground to work together to unify the industry, and there's been all kinds of things happening. But in the early 90s, the IACRC had a, a segment of that the regional associations worked together. It was called the Partnership Board. And then eventually they developed this ICRA, the, uh, the um, uh, Institute for Cleaning and Restoration Associations. And so that brand is now being used uh, by a number of people. And, and also we've been the IACRC has the Council of Associations. I mean, look, the IAQA started as being wanting being to be an association with associations. And we talked about that in part one of the show. So there was a there was a deal that was almost made in the early to mid 90s where ASCR and the ISCRC were going to come together, and and I believe and and if I'm historically a little bit wrong at uh, how it was interpreted, it's not intentional, but we wanted to separate association activities from standards setting and certification, and they, they're distinctly different. in the model in the industrial hygiene community and many other communities association activities uh, that uh, that support members, that deal with networking, that deal with education, that deal with um, putting on conventions. Uh, industry trade journal is different than certification criteria, third party, continue education, standards, guidelines, uh, the technical journals, things of this nature. We want to try to because there's too much overlap. Um, the deal, I think, at the 11th hour literally fell apart, I believe, it was based on politics and ego, um, and we'll leave it at that. Now, the next major attempt that took place was in 2008, and a couple things I want to comment on, Joe, and I made a, a few notes, so I didn't address them at the beginning of the show. They kind of rolled over from part one of the show, and it really has to kind of do with the standard setting. I may have addressed and talked a little bit. You know, I talked in the first part of the show on Mean Clip about the evolution of standards in the industry, the, uh, the sewage guidelines that led, led to the first S-500, the second S-500, and then in the early 2000s, the, the third edition of the S-500 essentially uh, was the first ANSI edition, and um, uh, uh, S-500 2006, and, and I was on the editing committees for the first two in the 90s, and then they had me, after I came back from my sabbatical, they put me as a reviewer for BIAS uh, on, the, on the third edition. But um, one of the things that I think was real critical that happened, and it, and it kind of, I, it still bothers me, is that in the first two editions, we developed a category a subcommittee called the third-party evaluators, which was a broad-based uh, thing. Anytime you needed someone independently on a project, they were called third-party evaluators. And then this IEP thing got formed and uh, kind of became the norm. And I kind of tended to think that. When when they went from the second S500 to the third one, I I kind of think they may have thrown the baby out with the bathwater. Where they started with this clean, completely clean sheet of paper, almost with no consideration to what happened before. And that doesn't mean it's a bad document or anything. But you know, sometimes things get lost like that. And and there should be this transfer. I mean, I know under the ANSI rules, every ten years, you know, you have to you know have certain things that you have to do. You got to update every five years and all that but when we went to that IEP thing I think that became very political and created a lot of uh, kind of confrontation and animus between uh, many of the other associations that had people that would fall under this IEP and how do you qualify them and what's a real credential and uh, what's a made-up one and all that kind of stuff um, right around all that same time in the early part of the twenty-first century the first decade then, then they had the first attempt at the S-520 which um... really uh... It wasn't the ANSI, it came later and uh, that was a very contentious process and trying to kind of create common language between the water document and the mold document has been challenging, and maybe even today as, as they try to work through that. But at the time, and Cliff knows about this, the ASCR came out with a mold guidance document that Marty King worked on, Michael Pinto early then, and others, where we took all the documents outside of the industry, but all the government documents, the EPA and the New York City guidelines, and there was a number of the Canadian documents it came out with just basic guidance. What did you agree with? What didn't you agree with? And the important thing there was, is nobody, the advice that a lot of the attorneys and a lot of, uh, you know, uh, experts gave was is don't say that you just follow any one thing. You have a series of documents that you follow. You don't pack yourself into a corner and, and you use a variety of documents. And I think that's probably a good message that that we don't lock in on one thing because no one thing really did the catch all for everything. Um, during those days when I was with the president, and a lot of issues that I had, is I always felt that people that ascended to positions of authority in the industry organizations and nonprofits who sold their businesses and then became consultants—where do you draw the line on overseeing conflict of interest, uh, enforcing your policies? Are are guys going around and bolstering you know their own reputations and mixing the dollars that are being paid by these nonprofits? To represent those organizations, and then then they're consultants, and then their names are in lights. And we went here, and we did that. And, and two things that, that Cliff and myself, I think, were very careful of. When I took my sabbatical and I traveled around the world, it was on my dime and my dollar. and never went back. I told Cliff when he was the president that year, he didn't do any training except the minimum they needed to do to maintain his credentials with IACRC. I said, Cliff, don't do what some of those other guys did. and 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 and, and even to this day, I think it's gotten better but I think the organizations need to be careful. They have to have oversight to be sensitive to that because that's the kind of stuff that hurts the organizations, drives volunteers away, you know, creates bad problems and, and, and then it backs up. And, and so I, I don't know, for whatever that's worth. I guess I need to get that off my test. Um, Cliff, I want to turn it over to you, and if you want to talk a little bit about Chuck Grumbartner and then the beginning of the 2008, where that went, and maybe I'll finish it up, and then we probably could, could uh, maybe we'll probably be ready for halftime, Joe, and then we can move into the second part of the show. Sounds so you good. can go
1: ahead. You can cover the Chuck Report, Pete. Go ahead. Well, what happened then,
2: Joe, in 2008, um, that year, uh, a group of people that were part of the Connections Group, essentially, ISRC shareholders, and RAA, right after we did the rebrand, we got together. To have some, some uh, meetings that we just, uh, uh, we hired Chuck Rumbarger, who's a, a giant, um, and a, uh, he's kind of the Peter Drucker of the association management industry, and he came in and uh, gave us some guidance and some uh, some lectures, if you will, on governance and the proper way to potentially have the industry come together, different models that we use, the federated model and a variety of things. and. Um, uh, so RAA paid for some facilitating fees. The Connections Group hired them, and over the course of a year, the two groups were kind of being counseled, and we had discussions. And then in 2008, it led to a meeting in Baltimore around the RA conference, and all the Connections people came in. Um, uh, Rusty Amarathy, I think, was the president at the time for our association, and Craig Kirschermeyer was the president of the, of the Connections Group. Uh, Chuck Rumbarger, you know, a, a lot of board members from both were there, and um, we were trying to see whether we could kind of bring the industry together at that time, work towards some kind of consolidation model. And uh, anyway, somewhere along the line, towards the tail end of the meeting, there were a couple of flies in the ointment, and uh, something came up. It was kind of like, well, yeah, sure, Uh, connections, and and we'd be happy to have REA become one of fourteen. and at that point, the whole room kind of stopped was never about being one of 14. It was about one of one. If you look at the membership of RAA and the membership of all the shareholder associations of the the ISRC, they're about equal. It's one and one. We're not one of 14. And people need to put their egos aside and and need to to, to look at the greater good if that's what they want to serve. And let's find a way to where we can can agree to agree, agree to disagree. Let's find out if if we can't get you know, if we can't, it's not going to be a perfect world. Let's get the best compromise we can for the greater good of the people that we serve and let's, let's try to move towards what we've been trying to do for 25 years. At that 2008 meeting, when I, I personally feel that some people intentionally uh, intentionally sabotaged that meeting. I think it hurt the industry. I think there was a lot of money that was spent by the organization to send people there in good faith and, and, and the industry was more divided. And now we're talking again in the last year or two and the industry is still divided, but uh, but I, I hope it's going to get better. And uh, and so, you know, for whatever that's worth, I don't want to get to names and put people on there because any of the insiders know who the people are and they know who they are. We don't need to name their names. What, what we need to talk about is what actually happened and, and how we can move past it. And that's what's important.
0: I think that's the hard part, moving past it, Pete. I know... Um... I would love to see that happen. I think it would be good. IAQA and um IAQ console at, at the time kind of did the same thing. Unfortunately, it uh didn't end up the way people would hope, but you know, uh it was an attempt at, at unifying that portion of the industry and uh hopefully we'll be able to do the same thing with the restoration industry here. But uh and, and the key is like you say, it, you have to do it for the the people within the industry, not for certain individuals to, um, to, to, to benefit from. Anyway, I think what we should do is um, go to halftime. We're going to take 90 seconds. We're going to thank our sponsors because without them, we wouldn't be here.
1: The Indoor Air Quality Association, a nonprofit multidisciplinary organization dedicated to promoting the exchange of indoor environmental information through education and research, Visit them at IAQA.org. Gray Wolf Sensing Solutions. We use advanced sensor software technology and embedded computers to provide superior environmental test instrumentation. Visit them at WolfSense.com.
0: Legends Environmental Insurance Services, the experts in insurance for environmental consultants and contractors for over 20 years. Check them out at legends-enviro.com.
1: And of course, our marquee sponsors, John Don Products, where restoration and abatement contractors shop. Visit them at johndon.com.
0: Clean Facts, the number one information source for cleaning and restoration professionals. Check them out at cleanfacts with an
1: IAQ.net and Healthy Indoors Magazine, a free online digital magazine for industry professionals and consumers. Subscriptions available at iaq.net. Please be sure to thank our sponsors for their support of IAQ Radio when you inquire about their products or services.
0: All right. We're back with this week's guest, the Restoration Industries global watchdog, Pete Consigli, of course, my co-host, the Z-Man. And, and we're, we're kind of up to date almost guys um you know we've got a an industry that's been changing f- rather dramatically i I think at least in the last five years maybe a little longer we're we're seeing consolidation uh, within the commercial sector there's some some fraction within the social sector we've got trades being integrated professions maturity where where are we at Pete
2: well you know, uh, before I move on, Cliff, you got any any kind of little comments that you wanted to dovetail off the last thing I talked about before the halftime?
1: No, we're good, Pete. We're good.
2: Okay, thanks. Well listen, I, I think that you know, as industries grow and mature, there becomes a point where, you know, where is the mature? Where are they in the in the maturity curve? Are they are they have they leveled off? Are they still in an upswing, or are they ready to go and decline? And you know, I. I think it's only speculative. I mean, there's probably economists and, uh, you know, some scientific types that probably can give real data. But, you know, with guys like me, and I kind of go more in my gut on my observations. And I kind of think we're at a crossroads in a delicate area that I think that we're we're kind of treading water. And I think we're either ready for the next upswing or ready to go and decline. And, of course, I'd like to see the sunny skies, not the, not the not the bottom of the cliff, you know. Um, interesting enough, there's, uh, I think the relationship between the insurers, the restoration industry, has gotten very tenuous at best, and uh, as it's grown and matured, um, this, as the standards evolve, as more people enter the market, um, different states have different laws that affect uh, you know, the work that we do. So I think it's important that the industry kind of self-regulates itself in these areas I don't think it's something, I mean, public health stuff, if the industry industry doesn't deal with that, you know, the government will normally step in. But a lot lot of it is just the commercial and the financial relationship, um, you know, between the people that basically pay for the services, the ones that provide the services, and the ones that need the services. And, of course, in restoration, it's a unique third-party model. Usually insurance companies or some commercial or government entity as exposure will basically pay for the work of a, disaster victims by the service providers. Um, I uh, I think that in the commercial area you see a lot of consolidation of a lot of large national companies and franchises. It's awful tough for independents that they don't have someone to lean on or some you know some brand that they can associate with. You know, it's kind of like the Walmarts and all the big box stores, it's tough for the small entrepreneurs and little retailers to survive and I don't think that's any difference in the service business. I think that fractionalization Joe that we talked about, kind of, you know, really what I was talking about before the halftime, I, I think it's time for the industry organizations to uh, to decide, you know, how to collaborate. And there's a passing of the, of the baton now. We're in a, in, a, in a delicate area between the baby boomers passing on to the, the Gen X and the millennials who are, you know, the next generation that will, will be the ones that are moving into stewardship of the associations and in the industry. And they're going to direct where we're going to go. And that's all happening. I think we need to to work together and understand the the different uh, you know understand what it takes in order to, to to be collaborative, to pass that the time, and for you know one generation to retire and for the next one to assume leadership.
0: Cliff, do you want to add anything before I ask a follow up?
1: Um, just you know, just one thing. I, I I think that you know as Pete said. You know, to me, I think the future in many ways uh, is second generation or third generation restoration companies. I have a lot of faith when I see the son or daughter of a successful company taking the reins. And, you know, they know the history. They've lived the history. And I'm real real comfortable with, with that dynamic. You know, I think sometimes I'm a little uncomfortable with the dynamic of some Person coming out of business school, and uh, you know, just you know, just you know, just doesn't have the history. That's all. I'm like Peter. You know, I think I'm partial to, you know, knowing the history. And I think when you know the history, uh, you know, you can build upon it. Well,
0: let me. I think one of the things I see, I'd like you to to comment on. And Pete, you you, you kind of started down this path with the big box stores and and the fact that on the commercial side, it's going to be tough to compete as a small company because of that. But I, I think the bigger trend is the insurance industry um, is really really starting to um, assert their dominance and their control over the over the situation and, and I'm wondering if even if we, I guarantee you this if we don't unify and work together, they will take control of things and, and you will become a commodity. If we do work together, there's a chance. How much of a chance, Pete? Well, I think
2: look, traditionally in the insurance sector whatever happens in the auto body and the collision industry, normally those trends uh, will filter down to to property and, rest, you know, the restoration area. And, you know, but a car is a thing, a house is a thing, but a house is also a home and a home that contains uh, the people's lives and their personal possessions. So it's not as easy to apply well, it works in collision and auto body to home and property repair uh, in, in many cases, but in some there, there are. So the way I look at it is I, I think that um, – What's happened now is that there's when the industry has grown and they get opportunists in there, particularly when the economy's down, everybody you know with a, with a hammer and a, and a pickup truck and they're out there wanting to do their thing, and the guy, you know buys a few air movers and is the emit a fire, maybe he may or may not take a class, and then he hears about all this money that can be made, et etc., et etc. Well, what I think is important is that the industry has to follow some accepted guidelines and standards. The insurance industry wants to apply, they like to apply cookie cutter. I mean, that's the way they think I get it but sometimes the restoration is not the same as a cookie-cutter approach you could take with a car. I mean, everybody knows if you own a Chevy, it costs so much to get it fixed and to change you up. If you own, own a Mercedes, don't pitch about changing your oil if you can afford to buy a car like that and, you know, give people a little more fussy about the service on it. Well, it's no different than the property repair industry, and, um, and I think that uh, we need to kind of keep our eye on that ball. Um, and, and the professional industry, they need to distance themselves from From the guys that are out there who really are the gougers, the guys who are not following anything, you know who are really probably inappropriately overcharging or overscoping or um you know um uh, hey, look Joe, you know in the i a q and the mold uh, stuff there's all kinds of charlatans out there and the and the duck cleaning there's been all kinds of exposes on channels, some of the stuff that these guys say to take advantage of the consumers, you know well. The the, 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 rest the professional industries need to dis themselves. Otherwise, what happens is the insurance industry or others, they kind of paint us all with a broad brush where they say, you guys. That would be the equivalent of a restoration guy who got in some kind of dispute with an insurance adjuster or a TPA, you know, over some bill, and saying, all you guys are like that. Well, we know they're not all like that. Some are hard-ass, some take certain lines, and others are different to work with. So you just can't paint everything with a broad brush. You have to put it in context. And I think that's part of professionalizing and that's part of growing and maturing and an industry coming together to to have a a, a representative voice when they have to deal with the insurance industry as a whole, deal with standards, deal with government regulations, deal with public health risks. That's the reason why the industry and the social sector, we need to put aside some of this pettiness, um, which is driven by special interest, which means that the people who are in charge... To take leadership positions. They, it's only time for the most serious people now. That we have to enforce our own policies. We have to have good policies about complex inventions. We have to be willing to to call people on the carpet. We have to have our leaders that are, are able to model and set a good example. So you know, people in, in glass houses don't throw stones. And I hate to think that I'm preaching here in the choir, and I'm certainly not saying that I'm perfect, and you know, we've all got our flaws. But you know. We don't talk about it in an open and honest way. It isn't going to get better by itself.
0: So. Cliff, anything you'd like to add on that topic? Um,
1: you know, I, I think a lot of it comes down to leadership, Joe. I think people in leadership positions, uh, you know, they they need to get things done. It's not just about going on, going along. Uh, you know, when you're in a leadership position, uh, you know, as president of an association or chairman or, or whatever. You know, you come in, there's, there's policies, there's procedures, there's action plans that are that are already in place. You know, RIH has put together this, you know, strategic plan. So uh, next president kind of doesn't have a whole lot of choice in terms of which direction the association is going. But when you get in there... I think you should try to do one thing and make a difference. I think you need to look at your association uh, and, you know, you do the SWOT analysis, you know, a strength, a weakness, an opportunity, uh, a threat, and figure out which one of those is the most important to you and kind of push that really along. And there have just been some mistakes made, I think, in these organizations, you know, in terms of management. Uh, you know some of them you know for we had the self management model for a long time and and that's good but yeah, you know, there's a difference between hiring a manager and having you know someone that's a, a trained certified Association executive, and I think having those types of people you know is is a big step you know I think a lot of times what would happen in, in, in associations is uh, someone would uh, either be asked to leave or leave on their own and then we would automatically promote the next person you know that could be the secretary or someone like that who was uh, uh, you know totally untrained uh, to take over so I think you know these are uh, you're know, asking for uh, competitive proposals, going through the due diligence, asking for references, and and so on and so forth uh, will make it better. In either, in either situation, change uh, is difficult, but I'll get off my soapbox. Yeah,
0: that's that's what we want. Um, now, we're, we're kind of moving to the point where you know we're, we've talked a little bit about some of the big picture issues facing the industry today, what we want to be when we grow up. You know, you've talked about passing the stewardship baton on to the next generation, trying to come together as one to deal with, you know, things like regulations, standards, competency, and to make sure that we have long term growth, viability, prosperity, all those things. Now, I got a text in from a listener that kind of ties into the most pressing issues facing the industry today. And I want to add this one to the list. I know you guys already want to talk about, and I'm going to change it a little bit in that um, they talked about losses caused by global warming, increasing insurance costs, and they're going to become more and more stringent. I want to add terrorism and acts of terror and how they also have affected the insurance industry, and And let's just not even get into global warming, but just I think we all would agree that You know, we're seeing changes, at least in the way um, weather patterns come and the amount of rain and heat and so on and so forth, What, whatever is causing it. How do you guys see these big pictures for the future?
2: Uh, So, listen, this thing on the the global warning, in 2003, at one of the the, the last, I think, uh, WLI conference, David Bierman gave a keynote address dealing with the world uh, organization that dealt with that, saying that that was going to affect the industry for years to come. In 2004 – we had an, an economist from the University of Michigan that talked about that at one of our conferences in Philadelphia. And they said that, that, that it affects the effects of global warming and the weather patterns in the world were there was gonna be a lot of a lot of damage that there was gonna be a need for the restoration industry. And then after that, you know, we had the tsunamis and all kinds of these global disasters. So there's gonna be work, whether the insurance companies pay, whether government entity pays, whether commercial organization pays, there's gonna be damage, there's gonna to have to be somebody to, to clean it up and mitigate it, and there's gonna to have to be some money or resources to paper. So that's kind of a given. Um I think that uh that right now, you know, look, like Cliff mentioned, the REA just went through some strategic planning, the IEQA, now under the ASHR umbrella went through strategic planning as you know, the IEQA went through a kind of a consolidation there a few years back. Joe you kind of alluded to it when the ISO and um uh the American Indoor Air Quality Council and all of that and that kind of had its little bit of the day and uh and now, you know, and look, there's a mixed few points and this opinions on IEQA that as many of your listeners are well aware, should we have come under Ashray, not come under it? You know, and, and look, uh, you can make a pro or con uh for either one. But you know, my my viewpoint is is you know coming under Ashtray in a major organization like that I, I think is a good thing. And uh, I think you you know, as an organization you are gonna work through the new model, just like REA is working through the professional model, working with, uh, with Smith Buckland, who is the largest and a giant in the, uh, in the um, association management field. They have tremendous resources. And, you know, you can't take someone who's been self-managed for an organization for 60 years and think overnight that, you know, it's just going to change like that. The IHCRC, they have the same challenges. Okay, that's it. We'll, we'll figure that kind of stuff out. But, um, but there's other pressing stuff. I mean, the patent stuff is something. But, uh, but the patent is a global issue. In our industry, it was very specific around the use of heat. And, uh, but um, if you look out there, I mean, Apple is involved in globally in patent suits and a lot of it in the biotechnology area. But I think those things just kind of come and go. Uh, for, for the restoration industry, I think the emergence of uh, the VA the, the third-party administration, uh, uh, third-party administrator networks, um, I think the margins are falling. A lot of restorers are very concerned about that. There's a low point of entry to get into the profession. I mean, there's a movement in the industry by some of the players who basically want to see the point of entry raised. So it's not so easy to just get that hammer, get a couple air movers, throw it in the back of a pickup truck, hang your shingle. You um, know, I have mixed feelings about that. At the heart, I'm a libertarian. I really don't think that the government, I, you know, inviting the government for more regulations, I'm not crazy about. But having said that, I believe that government plays an important role. It goes back to the founders. And they need to provide the safety for the citizens, and they need to, you know, allow the economy to flourish. And the, there should be laws that, um, you know, uh, I believe it's law government. Let's put it that way. I believe in entrepreneurialism. So uh, I don't think we need to be dependent on the government. So raising the bar entry, I kind of get it, but I'm not sure what that looks like. So I'm, I'm gonna, I'm gonna reserve my viewpoint in that. Um, I, I, I think the bar should probably be raised some, but I don't think it should be ridiculous. And then that kind of leads to monopolization, and then you violate antitrust, and the government, you know, they don't like that at all. But, um, so I think those are, are really uh, important uh, emerging issues. I think standardization, coming to agreement on certification, the body of knowledge that's being developed, we talked about in the last show by the RAA and we've invited AIHA, IAQA, um, the, uh, the folks at the Restoration Sciences Academy, and the IICRC. To, uh, to come out it, give us an organizational review. What do we leave out? Um, uh, what do we need in there? Uh, you know, we want to try to reach industry consensus that by the time that's published next year, there will be a six-year process That's part of the growing and maturing process. Uh, where we're at with Purdue and uh, how that whole thing's evolved. That, you know, Randy Rapp, uh, Professor of Purdue, we talked about in Part 1 with that summer camp, too. That I think is an important part of industry growing, maturing and as part of the credentialing process to get credibility with government and industry that uh, that profession has, has formed. So to me, these are the kinds of things that I think we need to concentrate uh, on as an industry to grow. And um, and like Cliff says, uh, the SWOT analysis we need to see where the threats are, and then in the industry, if they if they do have a way to work together, they can address them as an industry versus different groups addressing the same issues in different ways. that That's just totally not productive in my viewpoint.
0: Well, are you guys in agreement that the the third-party administrators, they're not going away?
2: No, I don't think they're going away at all. I think that's part of You know, I, I, I would like to see some standardization in that area. When we had to closing the gap uh, papers in the dialogue a couple of years ago, there were some terrific uh, uh, position papers are written in the um, – CNR Magazine. We had one written on uh, vendor, pa- vendor program papers, um, The Gentleman and Service Master, and I'm actually talking back with Pete Duncan about possibly taking a look at that paper and updating it and uh, and see if we can get it published in CNR. It was never published. It was uploaded as part of the convention proceedings at the area website. And the big thing that he talked about was is that there's so many different uh, kind of... Um, uh, rules and guidelines that all these different TPAs or that, that even the insurance companies have administered vendor programs want. And it's very confusing, and it adds the burden and cost that has to be passed on. And if they could at least agree on what the procedures would be on the, what kind of equipment, what kind of credentials, do you need to take photos, not take photos, whatever the documentation is. And I think that they, that industry is probably moving in that direction to a certain degree. But the things that, that doesn't, in fact, affect the competitive uh, differences of, of them, you know, serving their clients. If they can create some standardization, the benefit of that is is that it, it creates more of a level playing field for the guys that are doing the work. It's not going to determine who the best players are because that's going to be by delivering service, getting better, you know, uh, buying buying it at better prices so that they can be more cost competitive. But what it does is it cuts down a whole bunch of extra work that they expect these restoration guys to do and not build for it. And at the same time, it, uh, it standardizes, you know, we're all of them, where there's some standard model. Now, look, maybe there's a little bit of wishful thinking, and they may not want to have it, but, you know, that's the point of talking about it, having a show like this, is kind of throw it on the table, get people thinking. And whatever can be done that's improved where we're at now is going to be better in the, in, in the long run, even if it's not perfect.
1: Yeah, I've got a couple of comments, Joe. I think that, in many ways, uh uh Third-party uh, administrators are probably the single biggest threat that uh, restor- the restoration industry has. You know what happens is we have people that are trained, we have people that are experienced. You know, they're out on these job sites, and what they have to do is, in certain situations, get engaged on a real-time basis, where they're feeding information to. Uh, remotely to someone sitting in a seat that's gone through a couple of days of training and is considered an expert and they're calling the shots of telling them what they can do and telling them uh... what they can't do and i have a major problem with that i think the person in the house in the field should be making these calls these calls should not be made by industry standards uh... the you know the, the, the procedural these calls should not be made by an adjuster or a third-party administrator hundreds of miles away uh, who just doesn't have the experience to make the right call. And I think given the choice that there's probably not one third-party administrator that if it was his house would want a third-party administrator calling the shots about what's done in his house.
0: Good point. Very good point. All right, guys, I think what I'd like to do is just, Give folks the cue that we're kind of trying to wrap it up. So let's let's go to the roundup, and then I, I've got three more bullet points here. I'd like to put them out there for you guys to, you know, kind of wrap things up and tie this all together.
1: Move
0: up, up. up. high. Cut out, in, in. out, Hey, I. I'm not sure if you're the global restoration industry watchdog or not today. I just like that music, Pete.
2: <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I just moved from
0: like a area now into the, into the dog, into the dog pound, eh? <laughs> Yes, sir. Yes, sir. All right. Bullet points. I'm going to throw out some topics. Give me your final thoughts. Um, we talked a little bit about this one. Uh, I'd like to get some final thoughts on the separation of church and state. So association activities versus certification and standard activities. At this point, it's kind of a mismatch. You know, I mean, RIA writes some standards. They have some certifications. They also have members. IICRC sort of does, um, they really don't have membership, but nine out of ten registrants think they are members. So let's, let's throw that out, Pete.
2: Yeah, but look, so in the church versus state analogy, which is the founding fathers of America, they want to separate the, you know, religion from the, uh, from the administration of government. So, you know, using that model really in, in, the in the nonprofit world, I believe that the association activities, in my mind, are kind of a equivalent to the church. You know, this is where the members come, this is where they network, this is where they get educated... This is where they do association-related activities to grow and develop their businesses, get technical competence, etc. I think the the state side is kind of more regulatory, if you would. It's the government side of the social sector. This is where you develop standards, the certification criteria, whether it's third party or whether it's a first or second party. This is where, you know, you have the technical journal, uh, peer-reviewed, that kind of stuff. I think it's important that the industry is going to consolidate and come together that, they, that they, they're able to, to come to agreement on separating these activities so you have, you have association as an association and a standard of certification, the institute as the institute. And I think that, that discussion has been going on fairly seriously for just the last seven or eight years that let the REA group take the leadership in the association area and the ISCRC, you know, from the cleaning and restoration industry moves into a direction in standards and certification. And, you know, it's not something that's going to happen overnight just because we agree, but you start a meaningful dialogue and a process to work together to allow the industry to grow into that. And I think, I think if we have that, it's no different than, you know, the American model with the Congress and the executive branch and, uh, and, uh, and the Senate. You know, and, I mean, and, and all the social sector organizations in society are a reflection of the larger society they live in. So stop and think about this. This comes from Cuppy. You go take a look at the politics in America that we have in our Congress uh, battling with the White House, but you can take that same model to the UK, to Europe, and even to Australia and New Zealand, then look at the ama- analogy that filters down of the same political dynamic and the same partisanship and special interest in the associations. It's no different. It, and one is, is macro, the other is micro, or reflection. I think it's a lot easier for the, the micro guys, meaning the association social sector, to fix it quicker than the big macro government and all those special interests, you know, it's an economy of scale thing. So, and so maybe we can lead from the bottom up, let the people, you know, show the government how it should be done, because the people are the ones who put government in there in the first place. And to quote the Greeks, the Greeks said every 20 years, there should be a revolution to preserve the democracy. It clears out the corruption. Well, it's been more than 20 years.
0: It's been much more than 20. Couple, Cliff?
2: I've got a couple of follow-ups. I, I think in,
1: you know, we all hear this 20 rule, I think particularly in groups and associations, this 80-20 rule uh, oftentimes applies where 20% of the volunteers do 80% of the work. And that's okay. The work gets done. There's a danger in that, in that those doing the work can amass power, can amass influence, and I think both organizations, both RIA and IACRC, have been guilty of this, and it's cost both uh, associations. Uh, my, My second comment is, I really do not, while I agree with Pete on the separation of church and state, I do not agree on this industry obsession with third-party certification, I think it's a waste of time. I think it's a waste of money. I think it's a waste of effort. And because, what? How does the customer benefit from a third-party certified technician working in their house? You know what third-party means is someone a third party has overseen the bureaucratic process by which that person was certified. They're not guaranteeing the work. They're not guaranteeing the performance. They're not guaranteeing satisfaction. They're guaranteed that the certification process went through a bureaucracy.
0: I think...
2: Yeah, and look, so quick. I'm not so sure that we just... I I didn't necessarily say we should be third party. What I said wasn't what I think we're we're at. The industry, I think, what Barry and I seriously is we're going down the road to look at that. Other industries we work with have third-party accreditation, and maybe that works for them. It may or may not work for us. We really know the answer. But we're going down the road, and quite frankly, I think this is very healthy that you bring this up, and the part of the dialogue that the industry needs to have is, is where the pros and cons between the first the second and the third party, understanding what they actually mean, and then adopting the one we think that will work the best and that essentially that, can, that we can get confidence from the customers who we're trying to serve, and maybe it isn't a third-party model like you said, but I don't think we've had the discussion yet, Cliff. So I think the discussion needs to be had. Maybe, maybe now it'll start.
0: Well, when it starts, you've got to take two other things into consideration. One is government, because that that's what's pushing it at this point, at least in the mold world. The government wants this third-party certification, but the other thing is, you've got to look at it. On two levels, in my opinion, I agree with Cliff with respect to technicians. They don't need third-party certification. They need, to, they need um, someone to certify or, for lack of a better term, uh, a credit that they have certain skills. But when you get to the supervisory level, I think is where... You start to look at third party, but that's that's a like you say a discussion for for the future. It's it's happening now, uh, especially within the IICRC. I know. I mean, I'm on the board. I mean, I see I see the pros and cons, the arguments for, the arguments against, and maybe it'll be some hybrid model. But anyway, I'd like to follow up on what. Pete started on, and that is strengthening and building bridges to facilitate a dialogue that addresses these issues, these big issues that really matter. Where are we at there, guys?
2: Well, look, I, um, you know, the Republican debate was on last night on Fox. And I thought it was uh, very interesting and entertaining. And without getting into politics, I uh, the reason I brought it up is about a month ago, one of the Fox commentators, I think it was Tucker Carlson, said when the, kind of the whole circus started with the Republicans and all the drama around Hillary and everything, and they closed one of the shows out, and it basically he said, someone said, so where should these debates go? Where should the, the whole political process go for the presidential candidate next, next year? And he said, what really needs to happen and what these candidates need to talk about is they need to talk about issues that really matter to the people. And that struck a chord with me, and I thought, you know what, that's what the associations need to do and all the nonprofits. They need to talk, they need to identify what the real important issues are to their members and their constituents, and they need to recruit the right authors for the journals, the right speakers for the convention, the right, uh, you know, the right the leadership and, and interaction models for their committees, and they need to address the issues that matter. To preserve the industry and the profession, to better serve the customers, to deal with the issues with the insurance companies, the TPAs, the government, whatever it is, maybe that you know that needs to be the battle cry. I like the idea of one of the things we did for many years in the W.I. is we created a theme for our annual for the annual conferences, and once those themes were agreed upon, all the speakers and the programs were developed around the themes, and it usually addressed the pressing issues whatever they were of the day. And I think that you have to control the special interest. You have to control people that have something to sell. you got to get the right people. You've got to get balance. You have to have a variety of different perspectives. I may have mentioned this, Joe, in part one, but a basic tenets of a trade association is to provide a free platform and a free flow of ideas and exchange of information amongst its members. Don't censor them. Have rules of decorum. Enforce the rules of decorum in interaction. But let that, let, let that happen. And, and don't get in the middle of business disputes amongst the members. Don't take sides. The association should never do that. There's always going to be business disputes. There's always going to be competitive rivalries. And that's what, you know, people come to associations to do together what they can't do individually. So, you know, it's only a handful of things that, that, that does require leadership. It does require good management and, and abiding by these general principles. And you'll have engaged members, you'll have thriving associations that will look after the constituents members, look after the trade, and eventually preserve, you know, preserve the industry to the people that practice and other practitioners in there, and that will then allow for a smooth passing of the baton to the next stage of leadership and to pass uh, the stewardship on. So, you know, to me, that's that's what I think. Those are the things that I think, ha- we have to concentrate on things that matter.
0: Great point, and I think Cliff Hit on that as well. Cliff, where is this dialogue going to happen?
1: Joe, I, I really don't know. You know. This goes back to one of the things that you said about the government driving certification. Uh, I, don't, I don't know that government is driving certification in asbestos. I don't know that government is driving certification in other areas. You know, it seems to me that what government drives is what the lobbyists tell government to drive. You know, they're the people that are you know, getting paid to go in there and push agendas. And I really didn't know who, whose agenda this third-party certification is really in in mold removal and indoor uh, air quality. Uh, it it, it, it kind of concerns me. If government wants certification, they should look in the mirror and start certifying you know, some <laughs> of the people that, that serve in Congress and serve in the Senate. and. Uh, uh, you know, serve in uh, areas of higher executive
0: office. I hear you, and and just to clarify for folks in asbestos and lead, you bring up a great point. There's no certification. There are licensing programs, and they they simply make sure that someone has been educated, and they've passed an exam, and they've done some hands-on training, and they don't call them certified. They're they're just licensed, and. And I think um, that's part of the problem. Also, is the vocabulary we've got to have a good vocabulary. All right, gentlemen. Well,
1: Joe, you know, going back, if, if I, you know, let me ask you a multiple choice
0: question. Mm-hmm.
1: You know, which, you know, which of you know, which of these two materials, uh, uh, you know, is, is government regulated? A is mold. B is asbestos. And uh, you know, which which one of those is considered hazardous or known to be hazardous by the government? A is mold, B is asbestos. And I think, you know, you know where we're going with it. I just don't understand why mold is such a big issue. If it's such a big issue to the government, they should look at the government buildings. Buildings that are owned by the government, buildings that are occupied, you know, by the government, and uh, you know, let, let's start with fixing those. Gov- let's start with fixing the mold problems in those government buildings.
0: Hallelujah! I hear you. I hear you. I think Sharon Kramer would like that too. <laughs> she, she has been all over that issue, and I think that's part of the the problem. The government is almost. Um, uh, it's like um, one side, on the one hand, they own all these buildings. On the other hand, they're telling people who aren't government that own buildings how to do things, but they're not doing the same thing oftentimes in their own. So that's a good point. All right, gentlemen, let's do this. Last question from me, and then anything you'd like to add. Give me your view, your vision. What's the future hold for the let's go with the disaster restoration industry?
2: Well, you know, at the end of uh, part one of the show a couple of weeks ago, I kind of read what I thought, you know, the the vision was, and uh, we played the Mission Impossible team, and I read off uh, 11 points of where I'd like to see the social sector part of the industry grow, how the industry unifies, and put put that in the blog. So I'm not going to repeat and talk about any of that. Um, uh, You know, the listeners can... uh, can Google that. You can go to the IAQA radio website and you can do that. But I guess what I'd like to talk about, I, I think we're in the golden age of restoration. And, um, I, you know, almost 10 years ago, when I, when I was on vacation around the Christmas holiday, I wrote an article called The Founding Fathers of Restoration. It was in the March issue of 2007, Cleaning and Restoration with the cover story and I identified the four founding fathers that were Martin King, Lloyd Weaver, Cliff and Claude Blackburn, founder of Drys, and I, I thought they were the founders of restoration in the fire and water area. And, um, and uh, I've been thinking about the follow-up for that article for a long time. I started to write it about three years ago. I had gotten a new computer three or four years ago, and somehow I worked on it for four hours, and I don't know how I lost it. I didn't save it, and I think there was a message I wasn't ready to write it. And I actually have that document name that, sitting on my desktop and I think I'm ready to write that article, um, here by the end of this year and maybe m- might, might see it published in the first quarter of next year. And I, it's really about where the industry is going to go how we're going to pass this baton of stewardship and the fact that we are in this golden age of the, the maturing of the industry, um all the stuff we've talked about for, I guess, going on three hours now for the two parts of the show. I, you know, I'd like to see, you know, um, I, you know, that if you look at the, at the mission and the vision of, uh, and the core principles of IACRC and, uh, REA that was, uh, we talked about in the last show and it was in our blog. And of course, REA has come out with some new stuff, with strategic planning and just put it, put it out in the seen CNR update the other day. but, there's, you know, we have far more in common than we do in difference, differences. And, um, you know, I kind of like to model after the Marines. You know, Cliff was a Marine, and the Marine slogan and motto is Semper Fi, which in Latin, Semper Fidelis, it's about loyalty. And it's about, um, you know, if you ever go to the Marine website, you look at their, the, the global impact of the Marines, you look at what they do for our nation, and they're the only... Uh, organization in human history that can be mobilized and can land on the ground anywhere in the world in six hours to go to work. Maybe one day the restoration industry can do that. That can respond to global disasters and land anywhere. I think six hours is tough, but let's say 24. And land anywhere in the world to be able to respond to global disasters. And these disasters are global in nature, as we all know, and they seem to be more frequent. And the only way that that's going to be able to happen is if the industry has a global organization under one umbrella that um, can work together for the greater good. You know, compete in the marketplace. I get all that. That's going to happen. Some companies are going to be better than others. But But we forget sometimes who we really serve, and we talked about this in the part one of the show, that after the loss of a loved one and, you know, a financial ruin and things like that, you know, a disaster hitting where people live, there aren't many things that are more damaging and devastating than that. And the role that the restoration industry plays globally in society, I think, is underestimated. And sometimes even the insurance companies and the contractors and battling in the TBAs, you know, we forget so that does put the customer in the middle of this who's that's had a devastation. And... Um, I think we need to sometimes step back, t- take a deep breath, and let's remember who we're serving, where we came from, and, uh, and the po- important larger role that we play. So in my mind, I'd like to see that happen. I'd like to be able to see the industry respond globally to these disasters, working in conjunction with government, working in conjunction with the insurance industry, etc. So to me, that's what growing up and maturing is about, where we come to an association to do together what we can't do individually. We put petty, petty rivalries inside, control special interests, and um, and and we try to make it better for everyone. And, uh, you know, on the RA website, says we make it better. We promise. And uh, maybe as an industry we can do that. So, you know, on that note, I'll turn it over to my good friend Cliff. I'll thank you, Joe. Cliff, the listeners.
0: Thank you, Pete. Cliff?
1: Yeah, I uh I really don't have anything. I really don't have anything further. Uh
0: to All right. Well, I'll tell you I I can't think of a better way to end. I don't know how you taught being uh being able to be anywhere in the world and respond to disasters. It really hit home for me. Actually, I I want to mention another thing that hit home, Cliff. Last week after the show, you wrote the blog And um, sometimes things don't quite, you know, resonate with you until it becomes personal. And and we had an OSHA show last week. And right at the end of the blog, Cliff wrote, I think, a heartfelt um, finish to the blog where he had had an employee who was badly injured on a job. And it was, um, you know, an an OSHA kind of thing that, um, you know, fall protection, working off scaffolds, whatever. And um, it also ties into what Pete said you know we we've got to keep in mind who we work for here and and that is the the people out there that need our services and uh I want to thank both of you for your years and years of dedication um working on these issues I I look up to both of you and I I uh I learn from both of you I I appreciate your your friendship your 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 working together as colleagues and uh uh how how you guys are trying to help make this a better world in your segment of the world now i, I want to thank both of you for that and also for joining us and and spending this time to you know get it all down on uh, on tape and make sure that people will be able to listen to this for years and years to come and and hopefully it will do some good so this is radio hey joe, joe. I, go Pete. hey
2: john i guess I, there's one thing i want to say cliff um I think
1: like we just
0: had a
2: heck of a day, part two. We just had what? A heck of a day, part, oh, two. part, part two. Okay.
0: A right. heck of a day, gentlemen. Thanks again That's for joining day. us, Cliff. It's that time of the year. Um, we're going to take a few weeks off, folks. Um, Cliff, you on board with that. I didn't get a chance to talk to you, but uh, typically we take three weeks off this time of the year and recharge mentioned that we should take a short break from time to time i'll uh, put together some flashback fridays for folks it's august things are a little slow anyway we uh we know that happens every year but uh, this show was very important we wanted to make sure we got it on and uh what do you think buddy
1: that's fine with
0: me Uh, all right well This is Radio Joe Hughes saying, keep an eye on our show announcement. Check out the website, iaqradio.com. We've got 379 shows to choose from. And by the way, start with the newest show and work your way back, folks. (laughs) John and I noticed when we're looking at the downloads, a lot of people start with the earliest show and try and work their way forward. You may never get to the end and we've gotten better (laughs) over the years, at least in my opinion. But anyway, this is radio Joe saying, thanks so much. Uh, Pete, always great to have you with us. Um, thanks for taking the time out to put this together, to put your heart into it. Cliff, as always, thanks for your, uh, your contributions and, and, and your friendship on the show here for nine years now. And, um, Most importantly, thanks to our growing group of loyal listeners. Come back and join us next week, and uh, whenever we come back again for the next episode of IAQ Radio.
2: This has been another IAQ Radio production.